Welcome to the Bailey. I'm your host, Yassin Maschot, and today's episode is a special one. Cutie Herzog, famed testicle enthusiast and part-time podcaster, interviewed me about Andy No for her podcast. This is the full extended cut available only to patrons of Blocked and Reported, so don't tell anyone. Enjoy. Yassin Maschot, did I get it right? Did I pronounce it right? Yeah, you got. You have to have the ch in there. Okay. Maschot. <laughs> Salam alaikum, my brother. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Let's start by introductions. Go ahead and tell me how you would introduce yourself. Hmm. Uh, so I think I it's fair to say that I have um, a relatively unusual and overlapping cultural affiliation. Uh, my day job, I'm a public defender. Uh, in terms of politics, I'm basically a libertarian, similar to the uh, coverage that Reason Magazine usually uh, Tackles. This is kind of fucking me up though, because I consider you my anarchist friend. So you're saying you're actually a libertarian? Well, no, I can, I uh, consider myself an anarchist, but with like libertarian tendencies. That's usually like the best summary to get at into like my general uh, political affiliations, but the, it's, it's always hard to pin down. Okay. So let's describe your political affiliation. You're into guns. Yes. I fucking love guns. I'm a, I'm really big into gun rights. Uh, that's definitely like a, a, a significant aspect of it. I'm not into hierarchy, especially government authority. Uh, I'm generally in favor of just letting people do whatever they want. And if I was to describe an ideal, it's uh, it's like a paraphrasing of a Mao statement that says like let a thousand flowers bloom, but it's more like let a thousand societies bloom. Uh, but I'm into uh, allowing people to figure out how to best structure societies in whatever way that they can conceive of. Uh, generally in favor of decentralized uh, authority rather than concentrated authority. And that tends to flow out into a variety of uh, positions. So generally, I'm an anarchist, but with libertarian tendencies. But I'm a chameleon in terms of who uh, I affiliate with and who I spend time with. Right. Okay, so let's get back to your bio a little bit. So you're currently a public defender. And before that, you were? I used to work at the ACLU primarily focusing as an attorney primarily focusing on uh, abortion rights access. And you're an activist or were an activist, yes. which I guess gets how to how we met. Well, to back up for a bit, uh, given my fluidity in terms of political affiliations and my interest in guns, even though I would be more libertarian affiliated, I found out that, I guess prompted by the Trump administration, there were a lot more left-wing militant groups that started open carrying firearms at protests. And I was fucking thrilled by this because generally gun rights are conservative and right wing coded in this country. Uh, but that, but that doesn't necessarily have to be. And outside of the world, it's not, it's more kind of like a left wing thing. Uh, I mean, we can put this in the show notes, but there's an excellent essay called, uh, the rifle on the wall and a leftist argument for gun rights. And the elevator pitch is guns are power. Power is best widely distributed and, Therefore, guns are their uh, best wildly distributed as well. So that's kind of like the elevator pitch, the leftist position for pro-gun rights. But it doesn't show up that often in American culture. So my interest was in advocating for gun rights, specifically to demographics that didn't have an affiliation with it. So I found out that there were groups like the John Brown Gun Club who were anti-fascist, anti-racist, uh, left-wing oriented that were pro-gun uh, groups. And I desperately wanted to join them because I wanted to 
be an activist within that field? So, uh, so from the left wing position of guns are power, how do you deal with gun violence in a, in a society where guns kill people? This is, you know, gun violence in America is, uh, is endemic in some places and not just murder, but suicide as well. So how do you deal with that problem? The, the truth is that with every piece of power, there's some responsibility. And of course, there's some danger. Uh, you can uh, make an analogy to arguments against voting rights. Uh, if you say, you know, we should let people vote, there were always people that said, well, what if we, they vote the wrong person in? Or what if they exercise that, res- that power irresponsibly? And the response is, well, tough shit. That's kind of what happens when you give responsibility to people. Every right, there are trade-offs, and including my personal favorite right, which is free speech. There are trade-offs of free speech. As you mentioned, there are also trade-offs to voting. Donald fucking Trump was our president for four years. That's a <laughs> real flawed democracy. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to use the voting analogy, you can say, well, uh, what about like aristocracy or what about feudalism or about monarchy? You're always going to find some comparison that perhaps is better on at least like one metric. Uh, it's never going to be a clear cut. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a devotion to a principle, namely that power is best in the hands of people. I recognize that I acknowledge that there's danger to that, uh, but that's not enough to uh, erase the principle. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I guess I would be more comfortable if guns were used to do things like overthrow the government rather than like kill children. <laughs> but, you know, you know, there are there are trade-offs I, for every race. I agree. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you join the John Brown Gun Club, which is a leftist organization that uh, is is anarchist in nature. Is that correct? Yeah, it's anarchist affiliated. It doesn't really have like a a specific point of view. And uh, it it was admirably, in my opinion, a relatively big tent. So uh, it used to be affiliated with the Redneck Revolt. And it would say on its website, you know, we don't care if you're a libertarian, Republican, socialist, Marxist, as long as you uh, hew to the principles that we uphold, you're welcome to join our uh, our group. And uh, even though it was a leftist group, I noticed that it was refreshing and that it lacked uh, a bunch of leftist drama that you often see, uh, especially like around identity politics. Wow, that's that's actually shocking. I was uh, genuinely shocked, and I'm I'm not exaggerating this. Uh, we generally kind of got along with people and like kind of uh, didn't get fixated on pointless or petty disagreements. Uh, to give you an example, we had a member that used to be uh, a border patrol agent. Uh, there was like a very small minority of people that had kind of reservations about that, but pretty much everyone else was. Uh, into it because there was no question about the guy's adherence to our principles. Like he was into our mission. Uh, we, we, you know, we welcomed him with open arms. Uh, so that was just like one example. One literally. Yeah, open sure. arms. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was just one example. Uh, it was relatively drama free. I was a very prominent member. Uh, we, um, I even showed up in the CNN episode by uh, Kamau Bell when he profiled the, my particular uh, chapter uh, so I was heavily involved in them in a variety of ways. I, I was part of it for like um, I don't know, like a year and two months or something like that. And I was and remain very proud of my affiliation and the work that I did with that. So I think to set the stage a little bit, I do have to talk about my opinion on Antifa. Uh, do you want me to explain what Antifa is or should I just assume? Please do. No, please do. <sighs> All right. So Joe Biden got made fun of when he said that Antifa is an idea. Uh, but I think he had a fair point because Antifa isn't really a cohesive group. 
it's more of a, you can say it's a movement that adopts certain tactics. And sometimes those uh, individuals that are part of that movement coalesce into specific groups, uh, they, but they tend to be very small and sporadic. Ostensibly describes left-wing radicals engaging in street violence with the goal of fighting what they consider fascists or right-wingers. Um, if I was to steel man the mission statement of someone that is Antifa affiliated, it's that they're very, very concerned about uh, brown shirt movement taking over the country. Uh, and it's akin to an existential threat in that you want to avoid a Mussolini or a Hitler regime from taking over. And you want to make sure that they don't use street violence to achieve those goals. So ostensibly, it's a community defense that's meant to counter that. I have a lot of problems with Antifa, and I've always had. When I joined the, the John Brown Gun Club, I was very explicit with my opinions on Antifa. And to, to explain like what my position is, I, I have to kind of give an overview of how I approach philosophy on violence. And I think some of this you can actually apply to what you would consider cancel culture. When you're examining violence, you have to acknowledge that it's um, you know, one of the most crudest, most primitive, most primordial motivators of mankind. Uh, it's extremely destructive, obviously. Uh, by virtue of me being part of a militant organization, I didn't have, I'm not a, path, a pacifist. I didn't have a categorical objection to violence. However, I do have a, like a respect and admiration for it, or at least uh, a discipline to it. And so my philosophy is, is structured in such a way that, uh, for one, if you're going to engage in violence, you should have like a goal in mind, something articulable that you can identify. Uh, and that's to limit kind of like a, uh, engaging in it impulsively and just to satisfy, satisfy a thirst for, for destruction. Uh, the second thing is you want to have some proportionality so that it doesn't become like a runaway train. And the third thing is you ideally want to have some humility when it comes to receiving and being amenable to feedback. And you can kind of see how this is, this can apply to cancel culture uh, in some ways. So yeah. So if you apply the, that rubric, which I think, you know, I made it up, I think it's excellent. But if you apply that rubric to, um, to Antifa, I, I think it fails across the board. They're failing on all marks. Man. Yes. They on, get on, on many levels. So for one, it doesn't seem to have a goal. I mean, they, they claim that the goal is to prevent brown shirts, but operationally, the way they go about it is just kind of like random, chaotic, sporadic. Uh, you don't really know who is getting attacked and for what. Uh, there, was a, there was a guy in Portland who uh, almost killed a guy because he beat him in the head with a, a baton, and he got six years in prison. And the guy he beat, by any measure, was, was like an innocent bystander that was just trying to help break up a, a fight. So to me, I just kind of wonder, like, what, what the fuck was the point? Like, why did you do this? What did you hope to accomplish by that act of violence? And to me, it just seems kind of like baffling. I have no explanation for it. Uh, they also have like a very poor target acquisition. And uh, there's a bunch of examples of this. And it's kind of embarrassing how many crop up. But there was that Bernie supporter that got beat up because he happened to have be carrying an American flag at a, at a protest. Uh, and that was like sufficient enough to code him as fash by Antifa. So the chaos around it just leads to this like needless 
destruction that serves no purpose and can be even counterproductive. So describe what John Brown Gun Club would do at one of these rallies. And would you be there at the same time as Antifa? Um, from my experience, like observing these from a distance, it seems like John Brown Gun Club is more like a daytime thing <laughs> where you show up during the day and it's a, a bunch of people in sort of military – is it military gear or just like – I mean, it can be, camo? yeah. It was, okay. D- describe the scene for me. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that the John Brown Gun Club did was uh, provide security at protests. And uh, part of it was just showing up in gun with guns as a way to mollify and provide like a blanket of calm in case there were right-wingers who were also armed. Because there is a level of intimidation if, if only one side is armed. But if both sides are armed, there's kind of like a detente where uh, there's a mutual kind of like de-escalation happening on both sides. And this is in places where open carry is legal. Yes, uh, which is, yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, so we'd show up with sometimes, uh, you know, we were always armed, or at least you should assume that we were always armed. Uh, and sometimes it's only rare that we actually openly carried. And that was kind of like for special occasions we were okay. all excited about. Armed with what? Uh, I mean, we'd have long guns, we'd have uh, pistols. Uh, uh, a lot of us had body armor. Uh, you know, we, we had, we had all the equipment. I think of the difference between Antifa and John Brown Club, just not besides the fact that you guys open carry guns and the philosophies are different and the discipline is different, but also the costumes are different. Antifa, all black and John Brown Gun, gun Club, much more beige. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sure. The fashion uh, fashion choices were different. Uh, a big distinction is that uh, John Brown Gun Club never masked up. We never concealed our identities. Uh, we always heralded ourselves as an above board militant organization. There was no hiding from it. Like we talked to the media, we were very visible and very accessible uh, to anyone that wanted to seek us out. Which is very different from black block tactics of you know uh, wearing identity unidentifiable clothing and masking up uh, so that you have a level of group anonymity. We didn't have that with the John Brown gun club. So going back to uh, December, 2018, this was a, we were doing a, we were doing security at a protest where there were right wing groups also protesting and they were like on either side of the uh, street. And uh, Mr. Andy no was there. And this was way before he kind of blew up and became a national figure Uh, So he's just, you know, this like short Asian guy that happened to be at the scene. And I think someone might have must have recognized him and identified him as fascist and Nazi. And so I didn't I didn't see exactly what transpired. But what ended up happening was he tried to cross the street. Some protesters, you know, linked arms and started chanting uh, Nazis go home. Immigrants are welcome here, which is just really fucking funny (laughs) because most of them were white. Uh, and they were trying to block this, uh, this tiny Asian man from crossing the road. Uh, but what was, what I found disappointing and I still find disappointing, uh, was that members of the John Brown gun club also participated in blocking him, but the, there was a qualitative difference in that they had guns, uh, slung over themselves. Uh, I didn't like that. I was very disappointed with that. I didn't think there was any reason to respond to a non-threatening individual that was just taking pictures and wasn't harming anyone. I didn't think it was appropriate to respond with firearms. So I expressed my disagreement. Uh, the group didn't want to, didn't agree with me. So I ended up resigning. And just again, to clarify, that was basically the only point of disagreement that I've had with the group or its members 
uh, in the entire time that I was uh, part of it. Right. So this gets to how we met. So I wrote about this. So this protest was in Seattle and I wrote a piece for, um, a piece for the stranger about this. The headline of the piece, and we'll put this in the show notes is anti-racist protesters harass gay Asian American journalists. And as you point out, the Andy No of 2018 was much less well known. Um, now he has like over 800,000 followers on Twitter. He didn't at the time have this reputation for. Well, t- well, to be fair, like those those accusations are extremely slippery. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So the rumor, one of the rumors about Andy is that he gave a kill list to Autumn Waffen, which is a, a neo-Nazi group that I'd never heard of. The reason you're laughing is because it's ridiculous. This is the appropriate response to this. This has been spread through the media by so many fucking outlets. And nobody has any proof of it. My guess is that Andy didn't know what off and was. Well, it's not. It's okay. Here's here's what I'll do. I'll try to like steel man the argument that Andy no gave a kill list. Uh, Quillette ran a piece where they identified some social. They did like a social media analysis and found that some journalists tended to follow Antifa groups. And they created kind of like a web of what you would consider like Antifa biased journalists or something like that. Uh, and they published that. Uh, Andy No was like the editor at the time of Quillette. He had no nothing to do with the article. Uh, and then Adam Waffen, which is genuinely like a scary group that has like is prosecuted and hunted down by law enforcement and has uh, committed uh, several murders, or at least its members have. Uh, they like made an, a video that you can't find any time, but it was called Sunset the Media, and they copied names from this Quillette article into their video. So that that's kind of the link. So right. like the accusation that Andy No provided a kill list to Adam Waffen is like technically true in like a very tenuous and bad faith manner. I mean, not really because not if he had if, I mean, do we know that he like edited no, he the didn't. piece or had anything? He, to, he's been on right, the record. So he this. so he's not connected. This is just he's this is I mean, you could say that like Claire Lehman maybe <laughs> maybe gave a kill list to Adam Waffen. Nobody says that. And for the record, I don't think I don't think that's what happened. Right. It, it's right. like it's the most ridiculous interpretation of this. And it's in- intended to be kind of just this uh pity remark that's like, oh, you didn't know that Andy No was bad. Well, did you know that he provided a kill list to Adam Waffen? Which uh, if you actually know the details is just funny. Uh, so I have no idea who actually finds it convincing. And to me, it just kind of, uh, you know, have heavily. That's the thing is I think a lot of people do find it convincing and there are, uh, there are, you can find like photos online of people projecting Andy No gave kill list to Autumn Waffen on the sides of buildings in Portland. It just becomes propaganda. People repeat it often, so often that it just becomes absolutely true. Okay. So there was that incident and there was another incident, th- this other rumor that was widely published, like the Mercury published a piece on this, Rolling Stone published a piece on this, a, bother, a bunch of other outlets did, that said that Andy was involved with a like an attack on an anarchist cider bar in Portland, because of course anar- Portland has an anarchist cider bar. Um, and 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 Robbie Suave at Reason did the breakdown of this. And and the story behind this is there's basically like Andy's there with this group and I don't think he's there as a member of the group, a conservative group. And I don't think he's there as a member of the group. He's there as an observer. And Andy does not really cover the far right at all. He only, like he's embedded. He's basically embedded with this conservative group. We know his sympathies from his coverage. Mm-hmm. We know that his sympathies lie more with the conservative group than when with the anarchists for sure. Like he doesn't cover 
right-wing groups. You could also say the same thing about people who only cover right-wing groups where they're not covering groups like Antifa. Andy definitely has a beat. He definitely has a bias. He definitely has a focus. Uh, that's not in question. Uh, to me, it never surprised me that when he's at a protest, he might congregate around the the right wing groups such as pa- proud boys and patriot prayers for one they're not gonna kick the shit out of him <laughs> for one uh and maybe maybe they have some like sort of tacit agreement that he's not gonna be he's gonna be protected somewhat but if i was him i would be in serious fear of my safety if i wasn't if i was just detached and alone and you know this actually did happen he he was assaulted he did get a brain hemorrhage so this other incident where that is often used to uh, as evidence that Andy is somehow affiliated with the Proud Boys or with these these militant conservative groups, he was outside this cider this like anarchist cider bar, and the uh, the conservative militant guys attack the anarchists who were at the bar. And there's, and someone got like seriously hurt and Andy was there and there was video of Andy sort of like before the attack, like milling around this group. And he's not really engaging with them. He's like on his phone, sort of like, I think he like nods his head a couple times, but he's just like sort of milling around. Yep. And this, and so the Portland Mercury, which is owned by the stranger, my former employer, um, published this piece as though this were evidence that Andy was like complicit with this attack. And it, the mm-hmm. video doesn't show that he has any sort of foreknowledge of what's going on. Maybe he did. I don't know, but this is not verified in this piece, but it became canon. Yeah, I, I watched the video and I tried to find what exactly the reporter was talking about. Uh, the reporter also relied on like uh, someone that had infiltrated the group. So it wasn't right. just the video. And the reporter uh, didn't reach out to Andy for a comment. Yeah. I, I was kind of just puzzled when I watched the video. It's like, what am I What am I supposed to look at? Uh, but even if he's like around, I don't, I don't know what exactly is incriminating uh, about that, given given the serious safety concerns he would have just on his own. Okay, so those are the two sort of ant- big pieces of evidence against Andy No, And this ap- this all happened way after the December 2018 um, protest that led to you ultimately resigning from, from or I guess resigning, is that, do you like hands in a resignation? Okay, from John Brown Gun Club. So I wrote a piece in 2018, I wrote a piece about Andy, and he was, at the time, this was before all of this had happened, he had also, he had started covering these protests in Portland but he wasn't the sort of Andy No as we know him today. Um, so I wrote this piece and it was, it was just, it was about like, the piece was basically about sort of like the irony of anti-racist protesters. It's in the headline, anti-racist protesters harass gay Asian American journalists. And it was much less about the, what happened at the John Brown Gun Club. But I did, um, I'm just going to read you a paragraph in the piece. No says that not a single counter protester stood up for him, although a former ACLU attorney and a member of the Puget Sound John Brown Gun Club, quote, I mean, parentheses, a far left gun group that serves as security at protest, resigned from the group this week after seeing how No was treated. So that was you. And that's how I met you. Yeah. So I don't think I even quoted you in the piece, um, but we did talk on the phone. And, um, and then we ended up like meeting up in person and becoming friends. And now you're my, now you're my anarchist friend. Sure. Yeah. And also my Muslim friend. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ex Muslim, <laughs> but sure. We can go with Muslim. <laughs> and my ex Muslim friend. Well, since I'm a Muslim, I'm your Muslim friend. Yes. Finally. I'm, I first find my portfolio. 
<laughs> lesbian Muslim. I'm hard to come by. Um, okay. So that's how me, how we met. And first of all, what was your like basic impression of Andy at the time? I didn't know anything about him. I think I knew he wrote like vaguely anti Muslim things, which I know you're very angry about. Uh, but to me, very angry. And that we should say this refers to a Wall Street Journal piece that Andy wrote. We've talked about it a couple times. I'll put, I'll publish the, I'll put, post this in the show notes as well. Um, basically, Andy wrote a piece about going to London and going to these neighborhoods that had a bunch of Muslim residents and he misinterpreted some shit. Like there were signs saying like no, no drinking or something, no public intoxication. And Andy thought that was like somehow connected to Islam, but really it was just like a standard, like don't drink outside. Yeah. He, he made some serious mistakes, but to be fair, he did acknowledge that those were mistakes and, and corrected it. For what it's worth. Yeah. And, and I have to say, like, that's, it's, a, that's fucking worst case scenario for a reporter. It really shows like, like, it shows bias, but also like his editor should have fucking caught that. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know anything about him. Uh, what was important to me is that he wasn't threatening anyone at the time. That's all I, that's all I knew. Okay. So this was 2018. Let's fast forward to 2020. Um, what's your impression of Andy now? Oh, wait, 2021. <laughs> What's your impression of Andy now? Oh, that's that's a tough one. Um, my overall impression is I'm going to have like some very serious uh, criticism of his reporting and his work. Uh, but overall, I think he's still a net good. Uh, and only because the stuff he covers, no one else covers. Uh, and if I had like if I had it my way, I wish he would just stick to debunking like hate crime hoaxes. Uh, which was definitely like by far my favorite project of his because literally no one was like willing to uh, look closely at any allegation of a hate crime. Everything was kind of like very uh, credulous. It's like, oh, you got attacked because you were a part of a marginalized group. That's horrible. But no one bothered doing any follow up. Yeah, we should we should go into the details about this, too. So there's so many sides in this podcast. This is a very layered story. So in Portland, in maybe 2019, 2018, there was a rash of quote unquote hate crimes and nobody was reporting these hate crimes to the, against like queer trans people. And nobody was reporting to these police, but these rumors were circulating and it got really heated. Like I lived in Portland after college and I still know a bunch of people there. And my friends on social media and businesses that I follow there were posting like, you know, call this number if you need a ride. These businesses will be open for people, for queer people or people of color. Um, you know, people were really, really paranoid about this. The Portland Mercury published these just sort of like totally credulous mm -hmm. reports of these hate crimes without like talking to the victims. There were a bunch of GoFundMes where people were making a bunch of money. And Andy looked at one of these in particular and debunked it basically or i don't know if you can say it's conclusive but yeah yeah but he and he he did like basic shit like he would call the police and like uh ask is there is there a police report of this night like he would try to do corroboration which is like what ideally what a journalist should do uh right he would try to get like like a uh, security camera footage of these incidents uh i'm not saying those things are impossible it's just there was no basic fa uh, fact checking at all with these types of stories and people kept talking about this like maroon truck that was driving around because apparently one of the proud boys who lived across the river from portland and vancouver washington <laughs> drove a maroon truck so it'd just be like i would see these like a rash of instagram posts like the maroon truck is out it's like Take uh, care this of generation's white van <laughs> They're, they're coming for you. Yeah. So, I mean, I I have trouble giving you an assessment of how I feel about No, specifically his work. 
just because I, I find it really puzzling. I don't know why he covers certain things. He makes some decisions in his reporting and in his book, which we're going to talk about, that are just completely inexplicable to me and baffling and, and extremely bad faith. And I'll give some examples later. Yeah, and apparently he was attacked again recently. So on May 28th, um, I'm reading from uh, the Willamette Week here. This is an article by Suzette Smith. Portland protesters chase, tackle, and punch someone they believe to be Andy No until he hides in the Nines Hotel. There's another article, a follow-up, that says that apparently the Denver Nuggets basketball team was in the Nines Hotel. <laughs> so a lot of content come out of Portland. Um, and so, so there's video here of – of what may be Andy, it looks like Andy from from photos that people posted online hiding in this hotel after he was chased by these anti-fascists. Um, he moved to London some time ago, but he was maybe in Portland. He hasn't posted. So this was this was May 28th. He hasn't posted. Uh, we're recording this on June 1st. At this point, he hasn't posted anything for three days on Twitter. There's no mention of this, which is out of character for Andy. Um, so. We don't, this hasn't been verified, but like the video and the, the, the photos to me look, it looks like him. Or it could be his doppelganger. <laughs> okay. Let's go into that for a second. <laughs> All right. So, um, going back to Antifa's target acquisition, there was a video from Portland that showed, well, it was reported as, you know, protesters yell at Asian man because they believe that it's Andy No. And it's true. It wasn't Andy No. But if you look at the video, which I think you should post in the show notes, it's a little weird. You know, I don't have any evidence that there was any conspiracy. But if you watch the video, you see an Asian man that looks a lot like No, and he's wearing a blazer with like a shirt with no tie, and he has the same hair. Uh, and he tells like the protesters, "Oh, you think I'm Andy No because I'm an Asian? Asian? Fuck off!" Very different voice, completely different person. We'll, we'll post the uh, we'll post the yeah. audio here. I got a Why? Why? Who are you? Why the middle finger? What's your name? Who the fuck are you? Who are you? Why? Uh, hey, why are you? Do you here? think that I'm Andy? No, is that what you're thinking? <laughs> you racist cunt! <laughs> you wanna, would you like to see my face? Sure. But I'm fucking sick of this. This is the second time this has happened to me. The third time this has happened to me at protests. Yeah. It's like you're doing it intentionally. Then. Just be, just be proud that you're not Andy. Andy what's wrong? Yeah. Just be proud. No, that no. You're not I, I'm super proud that I'm not Andy. Well, but I'm really Andy. irritated that you cunts stand here no, and put your middle fingers in my fucking face. You're a bunch of racist cunts, and you gotta stop. Think about why you're here. Think about why you're here. If you're not Andy, then you wouldn't be antagonizing. You know exactly what you're doing. You know, exactly. Uh, they are honestly, they are profiling, profiling this guy. Like he looks heavier than Andy when he talks. Yep. Like he's wearing a mask. So there's that, but he doesn't like, he looks like Andy. But if you, if you know what Andy looks like, you wouldn't, I wouldn't mis have mistake, mistaken him for Andy. Um, and th like the haircut's kind of different. I don't know. Anyway, the new video looks to me more like Andy, the haircut, even though he's wearing a mask, the, the haircut looks more like Andy. Anyway, so we don't know at this point what happened or if he's okay or we don't know. Um, but let's get to his book. So you read his book. Yes, I read his entire book. It's called Unmasked. It came out in February of this year. And I'm not an, as, as you know, like I'm not an uninterested party. I'm actually quoted in the book because I've spoken to Andy quite extensively on multiple occasions. I don't have like, you know, categorical opposition to engaging with him. And in my conversations with him, I, I tell him like my problems with his reporting. What's, um, 
I can say also unequivocally that despite my criticism of his work, he's never been unfair to me. He's never quoted me out of context. He's fairly accurate. Like I don't have like big problems, but as I read through his book, I, I came across like a number, a number of issues. I think the big problem is that there's a big risk of walking away with uh, misinformation. If you have less than stellar familiarity with the uh, events that he's uh, describing. So I, the good stuff is, I mean, like the, the praise that I'll give him is that he is very uh, meticulous about his sourcing. Uh, he has like 400 footnotes, an entire sources section and like an index. And I've double checked like a lot of his citations. Nothing is ever like, you know, false or completely made up. There's some examples that I think come close. Structurally, it's a, a string of kind of anecdotes of Antifa related violence. He tries to kind of weave it together into like a meta narrative ostensibly with the goal of kind of impressing upon the raider that this is kind of like an existential threat to uh, this country and like Western civilization as a whole. Uh, but the big, big problem that he runs into is that Tifa is basically negligible in terms of its impact on a national scale. So most of the events that he covers are really just kind of like petty crimes and assaults uh, that would never make the national news and maybe not even like a local blotter. It's only because it's like tied to Antifa that it gets like kind of boosted onto a national platform. Uh, for a long time, like the defenders of Antifa had this common refrain, which is that Antifa never killed anyone, which was actually true for a while up until uh, August 29, 2020, when, uh, what was his name? Rhinel, Michael Rhinel shot and killed a, a Trump supporter like outside of, uh, outside of a rally. And in that case, it's pretty clear that there was a close nexus between uh, Rhinel's Antifa affiliation and uh, the murder. Uh, he has like a string of, you know, getting into physical altercations with conservatives at prior protests. Uh, he basically admitted as much when he was interviewed by Vice. Uh, I think the circumstances around his death are by, by law enforcement and uh, Lacey Washington are extremely suspicious. Uh, but if you want to tie a killing to Antifa ideology, I have no objection to, you know, marking that one up. That seems to be a clear example of that. But you're left with one. You're left with one murder that you can tie to to Antifa ideology. This is this is only true if you don't consider corporations people because they have destroyed <laughs> many a Starbucks window. Sure, you can say that they've you know destroyed uh, they've committed the property damage, and maybe you can even say you know they've only killed one person, but not for want of trying, based on like the multiple serious assaults that they've been involved in. That's all fair, but you, you, the body count is still at one, and. You, you know that like no realizes that this is like a big issue with his thesis and he tries so fucking hard to like stretch out the like the thinnest of the most tenuous of connections to as many incidents as he can and just like outline one example. Uh, I know it's hard to keep track of all the mass shootings, but in 2019, there were two mass shootings that occurred within 24 hours of each other. It was the El Paso uh, Walmart shooting that killed 23 people. And then there was a Dayton, Ohio shooting that killed nine people. And that happened within an hour, uh, 24 hours of each other. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So with the El Paso shooting, the guy posted on 8chan. He posted a manifesto and he said, you know, he complained about uh, Hispanics replacing the white race. He told detectives that he was specifically targeting Mexicans. There's no question that he was motivated by white supremacy or at least like his affiliation to white supremacy. And he killed 23 people. Uh, by contrast, the Dayton, Ohio shooting, even though it happened, you know, almost two years ago, 
law enforcement still has no idea like what exactly what the motivation was. They're sort of like maybe investigating like some incel affiliation. No, like almost feels, seems like devastated that he can't get like more on this guy because uh, he spends multiple pages like scrutinizing every single like like and follow and retweet of the Dayton, Ohio shooter. And it's clear he was a big fan of Antifa. I think he was a Bernie supporter. He even showed up to Antifa related protests, uh, carrying firearms. Uh, he definitely had an affiliation, but that's not the same thing as saying that the crime, the mass shooting was Antifa motivated. Yeah. There's a big, big gap, uh, between that. Right. I mean, the motives for people's shootings consistently get misrepresented in the media. This happened with the Pulse nightclub shooting, which I think probably yep. 10 people out of 10 would say was motivated by, motivated by homophobia. And subsequent um, court proceedings and reporting found that the shooter, Omar Mateen, didn't know he was at a gay bar. Right. But with the with the Pulse nightclub shooting, you can still say that it was motivated by Islamist uh, uh, affiliation. Maybe Maybe not anti-gay, but definitely Islamist. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is not our side of Muslim, of Islam. We're very yes, friendly yes, completely different. Yeah. Um, so, but but this gets to gets to my sort of the crux of my disagreement with Andy is that I think that he catastrophizes Antifa the way that a lot of the left catastrophizes white supremacist groups and the the way a lot of conservatives not that long ago were catastrophizing Islam. Yeah, but regard regardless of kind of like the overall scale, if we're only looking at the these like tiny movements, white supremacists and Antifa, uh, if we only narrow that, we still have like that like a big gap in terms of degrees of scale between those sure, two, sure. and that's a problem that Ant No has that ha- he he hasn't overcome in his book. So, what other criticism do you have of No's book? Sure. Uh, so, in his attempt to kind of lay claim to everybody as somewhat affiliated to Antifa, he has an extremely hypersensitive uh, dog whistle radar. Uh, and Katie, I know you're Muslim, so this <laughs> I think this <laughs> example will resonate with you. Uh, but you know Keith Ellison, right? Uh, yeah. He's, uh, at the time that I'm going to talk about, he was uh, Minnesota's, one of uh, Minnesota's uh, congressmen, uh, and now he's uh, its attorney general. He was the first Muslim uh, congressman i believe and you know of course like there was a lot of news when he swore on the quran uh as he took the oath of office as we all should yes mashallah mm-hmm. mashallah <laughs> uh so he posted uh, keith ellison posted a tweet where he's kind of like posing with this book written by uh, uh i think it's mark bray uh about anti-fascism specifically about antifa i never read the book i think it's just like a gushing praise of of the movement and he posted this uh, a picture of himself and with the tweet with the caption uh this book strikes fear in the heart of donald trump uh now when you hear the phrase strikes fear in the heart of what does that make you think of like nothing it's like a meaningless like strike like it makes you scared it's a, a very like it's a cliche a trope according to no it's a jihadist dog whistle. Oh, wow. And specifically, he claims that it's a reference to Quran chapter 8, <laughs> verse 12. Uh, and he, he quotes this on, on page 201. He says that this verse is used, often quoted by Islamic State and other jihadist groups to justify terrorism. And the specific quote that he claims the verse is, is, quote, I will strike fear into the hearts of disbelievers, end quote. Now, as a Muslim, you know that uh, you probably memorized the Quran by now. You know that you're uh, like Muslims 
do not like translating the Quran. They, they see it as a holy text that loses its meaning when it gets translated into other languages. Uh, so you always have to look at the original Arabic and there's kind of like a bunch of competing translations. I looked up this verse because I wanted to know like what he was talking about. Uh, the two translations I was able to find, like the most popular ones, none of them say strike fear into the heart of like the, they say cast horror into the hearts and cast terror into the hearts. So I was trying to find out the exact specific wording that no, uh, came up with. And here's where it gets weird. So if you plug in quote, I will strike fear into the hearts of disbelievers End quote, you can, you can do this if you want, you can tell me what comes up. Wait, I strike fear. I will strike fear into the hearts of disbelievers. Unmasked inside Antifa's radical land to destroy democracy. This is the next one is Reddit book review. Unmasked. <laughs> the third one, unmasked inside Antifa's radical plan to defeat democ- democracy. And then there's one that is, I guess, and there's that's it. That Reddit post is is by me. Oh wow. Yeah. So literally, this this quote does not exist anywhere on the internet. So I only have two explanations. Andy No made up this verbiage and he made it up specifically to, to pattern match to Keith Ellison's vocabulary, or he found some obscure Quranic translation that has no presence at all on the internet and made that connection. Now he could have just concluded that, you know, it was just like an innocent English idiom strike fear in the, into the heart sure. of, is used by multiple people. But instead, he specifically says that quote was not only chilling because of like the praise for the Antifa book, but chilling and disturbing because of the jihadist dog whistle that he identified as, as such. Okay, so there's not a huge difference between fear and horror, though, right? No, but the, the point is, Keith Ellison was very specific. He said, strikes fear into the heart. Well, isn't that the, uh, I'm not going to bother defending this. You, you did the detective work. I think you can be biased and have an agenda and still, I don't know, not mislead your readers. I mean, he's also been the subject of so much journalistic malpractice that maybe he has gotten the message that journalistic <laughs> malpractice is just fine. Well, the hardest part about evaluating his work is that he's extremely opaque about his own philosophy. I don't really know what he stands for uh, when he chooses to report things. Uh, Like if you look at his Twitter feed, it's just kind of like full of random local news. I mean, I put that in quotes. Like he posts like a fight involving black people at a Chuck E. Cheese, uh, or he, he posts like a mugshot of a black guy that's suspected of having shot three people, but he doesn't mention that it's like a former police detective. And I, you know, if I see his tweet, uh, his feed, I'm just like, what, why, why is this? Why are you covering this? I I don't understand what you're implying. And I read his entire book and I I can't come away with like a coherent philosophy uh, behind the, or ethos behind his actions. Uh, There's an example I came across. Uh, This man was killed in Atlanta by police at a Wendy's drive-thru. His name is uh, Rayshard Brooks. Uh, this happened, I, I think during the George Floyd uh, protests and caused a, a giant uproar when no writes about it. Uh, he says, quote, Brooks was made into the next BLM and Antifa martyr, even though he had an extensive criminal history. Uh, <laughs> he puts that even though, and I, I, he, maybe he thinks that it's like gives a ton of explanation, but I, I don't, I have no idea what he's trying to say. Is he implying that like having a criminal history means that it's like impossible to be mistreated by police? I, I think that's what it seems like, but he doesn't, he doesn't explain like what he means. 
uh, he, I mean, this is kind of like in line with his credulity when it comes to reporting on law enforcement actions. I don't think he's ever uh, said anything bad about police or criticized or, or pushed back in, in any fashion. Uh, and it doesn't show up in, in his book. So I think like an innocent reader that doesn't really know this topic is going to walk away with like a severely distorted and maybe confused uh, impression of the social dynamics at play. Thank you, Yassine, so much for this look into uh, the world of anarchy and of Andy No. For patrons, uh, Yassine's going to stay on a little bit longer, and we're going to talk about Willem Van Spronsen, who you may have heard of because he attempted to firebomb an ICE uh, prison in Washington State, and he was also a good friend of our guests. And if you have not joined the Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Okay. So Willem Van Spronsen, he is, is, he was briefly in the national news because in July 29th, why don't you just tell the story? Uh, so Willem Van Spronsen was a member of uh, the John Brown gun club. I considered him a good friend of mine. I, I mean, I saw him and spent time with him, uh, extensively across uh, my membership with John Brown. I always saw him as this like kind, very calm old man. Uh, he definitely had the various things that he was dealing with. Uh, he had chronic pain. Uh, he kind of was like perpetually impoverished because of his uh, profession. And what was his profession? He was kind of like a, a handyman. And he uh, lived on Vashon Island in Washington, right? He lived in uh, he lived on a piece of yeah. He lived in uh, Vashon Island. Uh, worked as a handyman slash carpenter. Uh, I think he was. 68 years old when he died. Uh, I mean, fairly up there in age and always kind of complained about chronic pain that he was, uh, he was dealing with. When I resigned from the club in December, 2018, I didn't have any contact with the, the rest of the members. Uh, and randomly I, I was actually browsing Andy knows uh, Twitter feed when I saw a news report that said, Oh, Tacoma area man was shot and killed during an attack on a ice facility. And I just kind of ignored it. Uh, but then I saw that it was uh, Will that was the person involved. Um, completely shocked, uh, very sad, and confused and kind of just like in a bit of disarray. I didn't fully understand what was going on. Uh, There's like a few bits of pieces, a few bits of information that I kind of gathered up after the fact. So according to media reports at the time, this attack, so it took place uh, in the midst of all of these demonstrations at at the ICE Center in Tacoma, Washington. And this was in the midst of family separation happening. Yeah, family separation was uh, a big issue around that time. Um, and I know that Will was involved in, I think there was like a an Occupy movement right outside of the facility. It's a private facility that's leased to ICE to hold the to detain immigrants. Uh, I know that he was very worked up about the issue. It was something very meaningful to him. Uh, he thought that it was an atrocity how children were separated from their parents and that in the conditions that they were kept. I know that he was involved in various protests around that facility, uh, including an, uh, like an encampment that kind of sprung up outside of uh, uh, the place. Yeah, everything that I know about the attack, I, I got it from uh, news reports. Uh, I know that he appeared to have tried to ignite a propane tank. Uh, he had a rifle and he was shot and killed by uh, two Tacoma police officers. Uh, no one else was injured. No one else was killed. He was the only casualty of, of that incident. 
There was a propane tank that was close to uh, the edge of the facility. So it was like close to the fence. Uh, from what I can tell from reports, he tried to light it on fire, perhaps using a Molotov cocktail. I know that his own car, who which I was in multiple times, uh, I know that his own car uh, ended up going up in flames. Uh, that's That was kind of the extent of it. I don't know. I have no idea exactly what he was trying to do. I know that he had a rifle with him uh, and there was some shootout uh, between the law enforcement. Uh, I don't know exactly what his ultimate aim was. Uh, my speculation is that it was kind of an elaborate suicide by cop uh, situation. Um, I understand that he lost custody of his son who I met, his uh, uh, younger son, uh, who I met a few times. And I know that he loved uh, his son dearly and that must have kind of just like broken him. Um, he was, I mean, yeah, he, he, he had like a long and hard life and perhaps didn't have much left uh, to go for and decided to go out that way. Right. So according to media reports at the time, um, there was a, he sent a farewell letter to the John Brown gun club, the Puget Sound John Brown gun club. And in the letter, um, he wrote, I am Antifa. I'm, and, and and so this is why this became, I mean, not, it became a story because it's a big story when someone tries to set fire to a government facility, but, and, and then ends up dead. Um, but also this, like this little, this little piece of it, I am Antifa. Yeah. He, uh, he declared his allegiance to Antifa in, in as much as you can. And he detailed kind of, uh, his motivation behind picking the ice facility specifically, which I've already outlined. Uh, one thing that I, appreciated about the members of the John Brown Gun Club is that they never disowned him. Uh, they never tried to uh, disavow themselves of, uh, of will. They even still pass out his manifesto. And one of the members, he, uh, he wears one of the spent casings that will fired, I believe around his neck. And this is, there's um, an NPR, I, I believe an NPR story that I can, that I can send you. Um, there, what, the reason I appreciate that is that I think it would have been easy to just write him off as mentally ill or, uh, otherwise unhinged. Uh, but from what I know of him, he was a deeply principled person. He chose this particular way to go out. I don't, I don't agree with it, with how he went about it, uh, uh, because I think ultimately it was pointless, but I don't have any question about his I guess, motivation and dedication to the principles that he espoused. Uh, and in kind of referencing our, our earlier conversation about Antifa, I do have deep suspicions about a lot of people that engage in Antifa tactics, because I don't know if they're just, you know, doing it to get their rocks off to engage in like uh, street violence for their own edification. Uh, but with Will, I don't have that doubt. I believe him. I believe he was, dedicated to his cause. I believe that he was principled and I appreciate that the John Brown gun club didn't disavow him. What do you think about what he did? It's, it does seem like from reporting that's been done and from what you've said, it seems like this idea of a, of an elaborate suicide by cop. And the fact that like, I'm mm -hmm. looking at his, uh, his final statement right here. We'll post a link to this, but this is available on online. Then he says in one of the first lines, I have a, a father's broken heart. I have a broken down body. And I've heard um, yep. interviews with, I think, his daughter about about how this custody battle sort of destroyed him. Mm -hmm. But even so, 
he still tried to set fire to an ice facility that people were inside. Yeah, he did. Uh, but I, I look at it from the standpoint of his perspective. He thought that an atrocity was ongoing. Uh, and he, but wouldn't that just hurt more people if, I mean, if he has had succeeded? No, no. I, yeah. Look, I'm not, I'm not commenting on the specific tactics he used. I, I'm kind of baffled by what he was actually trying to do. Uh, I even like looked up what a propane tank explosion looks like after that. And it, it's just like a giant boom. So I don't know exactly what the goal was or what it was going to accomplish or even the consideration on the safety of the uh, detainees inside the facility. I don't know any of that. I don't, you know, I'm not planning an attack on a government facility, <laughs> so I, I can't tell you and I can't compare notes. I'm only commenting on his uh, motivations and like what, uh, and his like, I guess like political zeal and his dedication to his ideals. Well, okay. Well, so do, what do you, I mean, what do you think about violence as a, or direct action? Like, do you think people should be attacking ICE facilities? No, I think what ICE is doing is is awful, but I don't think there's any purpose to attacking them because it's more kind of like a a flailing act of defiance. It's not going to work. Right. Uh, so uh, philosophically, I don't have a problem with uh, violence against the government, but ideally it's in a directed uh, and goal-oriented manner. All right. Well, if you're planning any further actions, please announce it on this podcast. Okay. I'll send you a Facebook invite. <laughs> please do it through Signal. <laughs> Yasin Meshot. Meshot. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Meshot. Yeah. Uh, where can the people find you? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't really have much of a social media presence except for uh, Reddit. I'm the moderator of the Mott. Uh, so... Scott Alexander, there's a kind of like a semi-official political uh, discussion subreddit called the Mott, T-H-E-M-O-T-T-E. And uh, the unofficial semi-official podcast is called The Bailey. Uh, it's, um, it's a place where you can have civil discussion with a variety of uh, viewpoints, which is kind of like my own pet project. Uh, and uh, it's basically like a higher IQ, uh, much more boring version of Blocked and Reported. <laughs> how, could, how could that even be possible? <laughs> uh, if you want recommendations for like a good introduction, the last episode on two arms and a head is a good one. And maybe the banality of uh, cat girls, which is on super stimuli, <laughs> if you're interested in that. Uh, what you, The other thing you can do is uh, go on a crime spree in and around uh, the Pacific Northwest, and maybe I'll be assigned your attorney. One could only be so lucky. We will put links to that in the show notes. And thank you so much, my anarchist.